morning, Crossroads. How we doing? It's so good to see you. We want to welcome our Lexington campus and those of you joining us online. Don't forget about our hashtag, Crossroads at Home. You can let us know you're still with us, even if you're not with us in person. We're thrilled to have you uh, through our online campus, Lexington campus. We love you guys over there. We're thrilled to have you as well. So good to be together. So good to see your faces again. Uh, I tell you, this excite, excitement builds all week to say, man, we're back, and uh, we're thankful for that. And I did want to mention to you, thank you for your patience with us. Uh, myself and uh, my team here at Crossroads just to be able to plan out services. I want you to know this. You may not know this, but around the country, churches of our size aren't yet meeting. And so we're taking great precaution to really make sure that we meet and, and make sure that you feel safe coming here. And so thank you for your patience with us. None of us have learned how to lead through a pandemic. And I couldn't find anybody that had done that before. And so uh, we, we're trying to figure that out. And so uh, you'll be hearing in the next month, we're going to be evaluating our services again and, and trying to uh, change and move the way we feel best uh, for you as well as for our team. So thank you for your patience. And if you feel a little frustration with this, I, I just want you to know, thank you. Join us. We feel frustrated too as we're trying to figure this out. So I just want to say thank you for your patience as we try to figure out what the future, what the new normal is going to look like here at Crossroads. So thank you for your patience. We that. If you would take your Bibles out with me and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there is one in the seat back in front of you. If you turn with us to page 976. Ephesians chapter 1, page 976. As you turn there, you know, we just sang this lyric that said, even when we don't see it, you're working. And I just want to encourage us as a body, as a church, God is at work behind the scenes in ways we could never imagine. Uh, I had some meetings this week and just am blown away by God's working in the midst of this chaos and confusion. And I'm excited in the weeks and months to come to be able to share with you how God is opening doors for our church. And it's because of your faithfulness, because of your faithfulness uh, to God's goodness and the gospel message. And uh, I just wanted to tease that a little bit to say, hey, God is working when we don't see it. And I was reminded of that this week, and it left me kind of on my knees saying, God, why are you being so good to us right now? Why are you at work in this way, in this season right now? And God is faithful, and it's because uh, we have said, God, we're willing to do whatever you called us to do, to reach more, serve more, and give more of ourselves for the sake of this message, the good news of the gospel. And so I'm excited. I'm excited about what God is doing. Ephesians chapter 1, let's dive in. Let me ask you this. What is the weirdest thing you have ever done? or ever wear? What is the weirdest thing you've ever done or maybe you ever wore in your life? Now some of you, you can't share that story because that was before Christ. Uh, that's, that's a rated version of something. Uh, for, for others, you got some crazy stories of the weirdest things you've ever done. In fact, my wife has a crazy one. Uh, back in our college days, uh, she actually jelloed wrestle for a fundraiser. Crazy. My wife is the sweetest woman you ever meet. She's pretty straight-laced, but she jello wrestled, and uh, I would love for you to talk to her about that. She's embarrassed by that. Um, she, I might be in trouble after this, but she jello wrestled. I did some weird things. I remember uh, years ago, back in like the late 80s, uh, especially on the East Coast, we went through this period where we wore something called jams. Anybody ever remember jams? What well, jams were were like long shorts 
but they were colorful. I mean, they had weird colors, and it was just, I mean, they were just splotched with, like, paint, it seemed like. And uh, they came down below the knee, and when you wore those, you just felt cool. Like, you walked around with a little bit of swagger if you had some jams on. What's funny is, I wore those things, I remember talking to my boys about them, and saying, yeah, they used to be the thing. And then it was like a week later, after we had talked about this, that uh, I, I was kind of scrolling through the news, and, and there was like this, this male model who was wearing something that looked exactly like jams. And I'm like, I cannot believe they're back. Like, isn't it true? Are you noticing the trends are coming back? Like the clothes we wore back in like the 80s are kind of coming back now. It's kind of funny to watch trends change. There are weird things that we have done and that we've been about. And what's interesting in our culture is it used to be when you would say, that's weird, that meant a bad thing. I don't know if how old you are, but for me, I'm, I'm 42, so I'm not that old. But back when, back when I was younger, if you said, that's weird, you wouldn't do it. But today, if you say, that's weird, that means more likes on Instagram. That mean, means more followers. Right? Weird is actually a good thing. Like, the weirder you are, the more attention you get. So here we are in this culture, and we live in this, this culture that has a quest for uniqueness and self-verification. We live in a culture that is really all about finding yourself. You are taught to find yourself. You are taught to search for yourself. We are taught to find who we really are. See, that's the question all of us are attempting to answer. Who are you? Who are you? If you had to describe yourself to someone, how would you describe yourself? And you can fill in the blank. I am blank. Whatever that may be. You might say, well, I, I'm good looking. I'm athletic. I, I'm, I, I'm rich. I'm poor. I, I'm loved. I'm hated. Right? You can fill in the blank. I, 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 I work hard. You can fill in the blank with whatever it is you think you are. Who are you? You're married. You're, you're divorced. You're single. You're ready. You're successful. You're a failure. What, what, what would you fill in the blank as you describe your life? Can I tell you, the answer to that question is identity-shaping, life-altering, and eternity-affecting. It is the question of our life. It's the greatest question you will ask. What is your identity? What's your identity? Who are you? You know, that search for identity begins at a very early age, doesn't it? From very early on, we begin to try to identify our small children. And we describe them, don't we? We say, well, that's the cute one. Or that's the athletic one. Or that's the smart one. We begin to describe them. Then we give them nicknames. And sometimes those nicknames are not good. Sometimes those nick 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 nicknames are absolutely cute. And we give them these nicknames that begin to describe them. To begin to build their identity. And they get in middle school. And what happens Middle school, you have chaos because you have no clue what your identity is. Like, it's like this mix between I want to be a grown-up, but I don't know how. And so you're trying to grow up, and all of a sudden there's identity confusion that happens in middle school. And I have a theory in parenting that it's that moment we push kids away, and then they get in high school, and they get a little bit cool, and then we want them to come near us. And as parents, they go, hey, mom and dad, you didn't want me back then. Why would I want to be with you now? 
I'm convinced. I'm convinced we push away middle school because that's a weird, awkward, smelly stage. And so we push away our kids. And just a parenting theory, one day I might write about that because I think it's true. We push them away in middle school because they smell weird and they look weird and they got all these things happening, these changes, and then all of a sudden they get in high school and we want a close relationship with them and they're gone. It's done. We push them away for too long. Right? And so all of a sudden they get into high school and now they got to figure out life. And so we begin to try to build our identity, right? We build our identity in our job. What are we going to do with our life? What is going to be our accomplishment? Who we're going to marry? How many kids we're going to have? What kind of house am I going to live in? And all of a sudden we continue the quest for identity. We continue the quest to search for the answer of self. We're looking for something that will satisfy. Now add to that search the season that we are coming out of, a season where we have been quarantined, a season unlike any other. Think about this for a moment. In fact, Forbes magazine had a recent article, and it was about coronavirus and identity. And listen to the headline of this article. It was called this. It was called, I don't recognize myself anymore. Isn't it interesting that in the midst of this quarantine season, this chaos of coronavirus, There are many people that actually had more identity confusion than ever before. Why? Because the things that we look to satisfy our identity were no longer there. Our jobs, our our normal daily lives, the places we spend money, they were no longer there. Sports, it was no longer there. And so the article was, I don't even recognize myself anymore. It's about someone who gets up every day and goes to work and is successful and eats out and has great relationships and goes to parties. And, and it's, in the end there, they said, I wake up in the morning, I don't even have to brush my hair now. And they talk about how they don't even recognize themselves. Here we are at a reset moment in history. And the question we're still asking is, who are we? So for the next few weeks, we want to talk about what is our identity? What does identity look like? in the new normal. This is a great moment to pause our lives and to say, what is my identity founded on? What am I really about? Who am I? And so for the next few weeks, we're going to be guiding through this small yet power-packed book called The Letter to the Ephesians. It's the book of Ephesians, and we're going to be walking through this. Now, for many of you, you have read this book. It is a very simple book to read. It would take you about 20 minutes. It is but six chapters, 155 verses. It's not very long at all, but yet it's integral to the Christian journey. Here is the Apostle Paul, and he is writing from a very unique perspective to the, to the, 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 the Ephesians, the, uh, the, the people of Ephesus. He's writing from a unique perspective because... He spent most of his missionary journey, of all the places that he went to, the Apostle Paul stayed in this city more than any other. In fact, he was there for three years. He stayed in the city of Ephesus for three years, serving and working. This city was one of the gems of the world of that day. In the Roman Empire, Ephesus was one of the major cities. In fact, it was probably the fourth largest city of the world in that day. Let me compare it. If you take the U.S., let's say you got New York and Los Angeles, this would have been Chicago. This would have been like Houston and maybe even New York City a little bit in around the world. This was one of the world gems, the, one of the largest cities in the world of that day. I mean, there was a lot of things about it. It was right on a port, right on the, on the sea. It was impressive and both intimidating. It was one of the major trade routes. It housed an amphitheater there that seated 25,000 people. It had a stadium. Uh, They would do games there that were kind of precursors to the Olympic Games. And so sport was highly active in the city of Ephesus. 
It also was very religious. You would call it a religious smorgasbord. What do I mean? There were over 50 temples to different Roman gods there. 50 temples, and one of them was a temple that was considered one of the seven greatest wonders of the ancient world. It was a, it was a, a museum, if you will. It was a temple to the Greek goddess Artemis, or in other, the Roman language, it was called Diana. It, it was a, a huge temple. By the way, you can still go see the ruins today, and it was considered one of the seven greatest world, wonders of the ancient world. It was also a place where many Jews found themselves. Because of the dispersion of Jews through, from Israel around the world, Ephesus became a hug, a hub for both Jews and Gentiles. It was a Roman city, but it had a lot of Jews in it. So as Paul is writing, he is going to be talking about these things. This is an impressive city that Paul knew very well, a city that struggled with identity. Take a look with me, Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's pause here for a moment. Paul always begins his letter with a bit of defense about who he is. Notice he stakes his claim as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Why does he do that? He does this in every letter. This is certainly true in Ephesus. Why does he do that to the Ephesians? Because there was great debate about the work of Paul. If you didn't know this, when Paul was there, they actually kicked him out of the city after three years. Because the silversmith that made these little idols, he started to overcome them with the gospel. They started, people started giving up buying these things. And so it created an uproar and eventually they rioted and they kicked him out of the city. So Paul here, as he writes this letter from prison, he is now in prison in Rome. He says, I am an apostle by the will of God. So hear me, I have some authority in what I'm about to say because I'm an apostle by the will of God. In fact, if you want to know the... Uh, the opposition that Paul experienced, all you have to do is read a letter that he wrote while he was living in Ephesus. He wrote a letter in Ephesus. It was a letter to the Corinthians. Listen to this verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he's writing this from Ephesus to the Corinthians, and he says this, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, the feast, because a wide door for effective ministry has opened for me, yet many oppose me. Here we see Paul, right? He's writing this letter. He says, hey, there's a wide door of effective ministry. I'm going to stay here. He stayed for three years. But there is great opposition happening as well. There is great, a great force coming against me while I'm here trying to preach this gospel. It is not going well. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment. Imagine being an Ephesian. I mean, you got this city of grandeur wrapped in identity, like it was a crown jewel of the ancient world, this city, and yet all of a sudden, now you have this newfound relationship with Jesus Christ, something that was really weird and different, something that didn't make sense, that was contrary to the Roman, Roman God, Godhead, and yet here you are now a new Christian. You can imagine the opposition that Christians were experiencing. There was a tug of war for identity. It was not a Christian-friendly place. So you can imagine the internal conflict that this would rise in the Ephesians. There was a struggle with who were they? What does this look like to live out? How do we be a Christian and live in this culture? How do, how do, we, how do we drive into Christ by not knowing exactly what that means? 
you could imagine the strong pull for identity that they experienced. Now, for you and I, it may be different in our world, but yet it's not that different. It's certainly times have changed, but that search we have for identity is still there. It's still there, and that struggle, that pull that you and I may experience as Christians can still be strong. It can still pull us greatly. Our identity can become confusing at times as we try to live out Christ in a world that's contrary, in a world that's different, in a world that thinks we're weird, in a world that we think's weird. How do we do that? What does it look like? Well, first of all, let's identify our identity. Where do we run to find identity? Where do the Ephesians run to find identity? How, what, do we, what can we identify as our identity? First of all, many of us, when we try to find our identity, we, we think identity comes based upon behavior. This is kind of the first observation of our identity. We think our identity is based on behavior. Based on behavior. We think that identity is what we do. Let me prove it for a moment. If I were to ask you, describe yourself, who are you? I bet you 99.9% .9 of us in this room would answer the question, not with who we are, but with what we do. It's true. Most of us, if we ask the question, who are you, we're going to say, well, I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a pastor. I, you're right, you, you fill in the blank. I, I'm a real estate agent. I'm, I'm a a car salesman, I'm, right, I'm a teacher, I'm a, a principal, I'm, right, you name it. Well, most of us, when we ask who we are, we don't answer with who we are, we answer with what we do. Why? Because we believe identity, by nature, is based upon our behavior. It's based upon the things we accomplish. We believe that accomplishment precedes acceptance, and achievement precedes approval. So I've got to prove myself, I've got to gain this, and then all of a sudden I have my identity. So imagine the Ephesians. A city wrapped in culture, religion, relationship, business, success, and sport. Imagine the confusion when they see, see it said, Hey, your identity is in Christ. What does that even mean? For many of us, we have that same confusion because we base our identity on our behavior, on our accomplishments. Secondly, we can base our behavior not just on our behavior, but base it upon our DNA. We believe that DNA determines our identity, that our identity is determined by our DNA. So for some of us, our identity is wrapped in who our parents were or who our grandparents were. Have you ever heard the expression, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree? It's true. My, my dad died when I was eight years old, but the people that knew my dad, I don't remember much about him, but the people that knew my dad, they would say, man, Dave, you are exactly like him. Like, you have the same mannerisms, and uh, you do some of the same things, and your build is the same. And, and I, I don't know that because my dad died when I was younger, but, but I know my own boys. There are sometimes people who go up to my sons, and they'll go like, you sound exactly like your dad. Or, man, you look like your dad. And I take that as a great compliment. I mean, anytime they say that, trust me, I let them know. Well, of course. I mean, your your looks. I mean, I'm good looking. You're, I mean, by the way, can I just encourage you as a church? Keep doing that to them. Like when you see my boys go up and say to them, "Hey, you're so much like your dad." Do that because it's so embarrassing to them, and it's such a win for me. I mean, I feel so much better when people do that. So, so please keep doing that. But right, you know what I'm talking about, right? You might have those mannerisms, and there are things you don't want and things you do want, but it comes through your DNA. And for some of us, we're actually finding our identity in our DNA, who we were from. That can be good and bad. For others, it's not just our DNA. For some of us, 
We find our identity because we're marked by mistakes. For, for some of us, our identity has been wrapped in something we did in the past, something maybe sinful, something wrong, something we chose to do in the past. And for some of us, our identity has been wrapped in who we were. And so for you, when you think of yourself, when you, when you consider the question who you are, you always think of this past moment where you failed. By the way, in the city of Ephesus, much of their worship was centered on sexuality. If you would go to the temple temple, you would actually go to the temple and you would actually rent out some prostitutes. It's horrible. That's how it worked in the city of Ephesus. It was a normal practice of worship. So, so imagine many of them now coming to Christ and they had this past history. I mean, this past history, they're walking by the temple, they knew this person, that person, that person, and they saw them in the past and all of a sudden they probably struggle with the fact that their identity was wrapped in their past failures. For some of us, our identity is wrapped in something we did and we can't escape it. It overwhelms us. It's the first thing we think about when we think about ourselves. It is past mistake that we cannot overcome. It is our label, if you will, of who we were. For others, we find our identity in, in our abilities. We believe identity is acquired from abilities. And so we go out to get more abilities. We go out to get more education. By the way, in Ephesus, this is a place. It's a cosmopolitan and multicultural place. It boasted one of the largest libraries in the entire world. It was known as a place of prestige, a prestigious knowledge, of a prestigious scholarship in this city. And so many were trying to find their accomplishment, their acquired abilities, what they could gain, what sport they played, what they knew about life, the instrument they played, the dance recital that they were a part of. That wrapped their identity. That defined them. The problem is, I, mean, I was a baseball player growing up. I truly believe my dream was to play for the Baltimore Orioles. I was from Maryland, of course, and so my dream was to play for the Baltimore Orioles. And I was quite good at baseball in the, back in the day, and I got to play with some great teams. Um, and even college, I mean, I, baseball was my thing. And there was that dream as a kid. What happens, though? What happens to those dreams when we wrap ourselves in our abilities? is eventually you get older. And every young person here hear this because you're going to hear old people say this and you're going to look at them and think, they lost their mind. They just weren't that good back in the day. You, you, right, they tell the stories and you're like, yeah, they weren't that athletic. I've seen them now. No, what they're speaking of is from wisdom. What happens? You get older and all of a sudden the things that used to work really well don't work so well. And, and if you do throw a ball for five minutes, you can't move your arm afterwards. It happens. All of a sudden, those abilities begin to fade. And, and so what happens? You've got to find a new ability. And so this is what happens in life. Right? We're constantly seeking out, whether it's through mistakes or past failures, whether it's through our DNA, whether it's through more behavior that we can accomplish, whether it's through abilities. We're searching for this identity. Here's the, here's the point. The point is, this only leads to more insignificance and unworthiness. This type of searching only leaves us emptier. In fact, it leaves us aimless. And can I tell you, hear me, aimlessness, I believe, is the plight of our generation. No one knows who they are. No one knows what they're looking for. No one knows their identity. And so what happens? Our lives are like a pinball machine. Boom, boom. And we're looking, and we're searching, and we're trying to find what is it that will bring me purpose. And we're walking around aimless and we think we find something and what happens? It doesn't satisfy. And so we find something else. And this is the world that we live in. It is like pinball. It is aimless. It is insignificant. Now watch what Paul says here. Listen to this. Paul begins and notice what he says in verse 1. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful. What is he doing here? He's saying, I'm writing to you who are faithful. But what is he doing? He's actually calling out of them what he hopes them to be. He's calling them what he hopes them to be. He's saying, you who are faithful. Many of them were like, hey, I don't know what that looks like. I'm calling you out faithfulness. Faithfulness to Christ. When you read this book, as we journey through the book of Ephesians, you know what we're going to find in this book? is over and over and over and over again, Paul is going to remind us that identity determines behavior. This is number one. Identity determines behavior. It's the other way around. Our identity is not based upon our behavior. Our identity actually is what leads to behavior. Our identity determines our behavior. It's not our search for identity leads us to do things and accomplish things. No, no, no. I have my identity and now I do. It's the opposite. This is weird. This is countercultural. My identity determines my behavior. Who you are determines what you do. If you know who you are, then you know what to do. By the way, you're going to see this all through this book. In this letter, over 36 times, Paul will remind them, you are in Christ. You are in Christ. You are in Christ. It's mentioned 11 times in the verses we're about ready to read. This idea that you are in Christ. Why does he do that? He wants you to see this is where your identity comes from. It doesn't come from your effort. It doesn't come from your past mistakes. It doesn't come from your ability. It comes in Christ. When you're in Christ, you know who you are. If you're not, if, you, if you're looking for success, abilities, can I tell you a secret? Can I tell you this truth? If you're looking for your identity and what you do, in your work, in your accomplishments, in your efforts, when you're successful, it will go to your head. If you fail, it will go to your heart. And you will spend your life fighting for something that you will never attain. It's true. If you make your identity your success in life, whatever that may be, sports, money, relationships, whatever, when you're successful, it will go to your head. When you fail, it will go to your heart. And you will spend your days fighting for something you can't grasp. So what does Paul say? Faithfulness in Christ. It's in Christ. In Christ is where we find this. You need something to have your identity rooted in. You need something that you have your identity rooted in that will not change, that will remain the same, and the answer is Christ, and that's what he begins with. And then he begins to describe what this looks like. Take a look with me, verses 3, and we're going to go through verse 14. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things of the earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are, were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. 
In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So here is Paul, and he begins right away by saying, here's your identity. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed you, blessed us, blessed them with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every blessing he has given to you. You don't need anything else in life. Every spiritual blessing has been set for you. Now, these verses, verse 3 through 14, is actually one extremely long sentence. This is an English teacher's dream. It is a run-on sentence that keeps going. It's 202 words that just continue. There's no stopping point. There's no end of sentence. It is one sentence. I believe it's intentional because God wants us to see that his plan is sufficient, that his plan is, is, is complete. There's no weakness in it. You can't, you can't, there's no missing links. It all just continues. It all finishes. One complex, complete sentence. And he says, here's the deal. You have been blessed. In the past, this is aorist tense, in the past, this has been accomplished. And yet the effect of that may continue. You, you see it in life. It's been done. Here's the point that Paul is making. Christian identity is received, not achieved. If identity determines behavior, where do I find that identity? Well, Christian identity tells us that our identity is not achieved, it's received. It's something I get from the Lord. It's not something I gain for God. It's something that he gives to me. It's given to me. My identity is wrapped in the work of God. I want to show you this. Notice the three ways that God, God works. So he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Notice, first of all, we are chosen by the Father. How do we find our identities? How, how, do, we, how do we have our identities received? First of all, we are chosen by the Father. The, the word here, ek, lego, it literally means to choose out of. We are chosen by the Father. Now, I know some of you, you read this, and you just got nervous. Oh, here we go. Chosen, what does that mean? Predestination, that word is in there. We get real nervous when we see these words, don't we? I want to calm you for a moment. First of all, we have no problem with God choosing people, do we? Let's just be honest. We had no problem with God choosing Israel as a nation. We have no problem with God choosing Moses as a patriarch of the nation. We have no, no problem with Abraham being chosen. We, we have no problem with uh, God choosing Gideon as a judge or Samson as a judge. We have no problem with God choosing David as a king. We don't have problems with God choosing. Our problem is when we don't understand what God isn't choosing. And so what do we focus on? When we talk about God choosing, we immediately focus on what he's not choosing instead of focusing on what he is choosing. Here, here's the problem. The reason why this doctrine of God's choosing is so confusing to us is because, is because we don't understand the plight of our own situations. Right? Here's the point. In my spiritual life, if I had to pick somebody to be on a team to win, I would not pick myself. Why? Because I'm sinful, because I'm wicked, because I'm ungodly, because I cannot save myself. I cannot win this game of life. I cannot get the victory. As much as I try, I keep sinning. The Bible says that. It says, for all of sin that come short of the glory of God. It says that even our good deeds are like filthy rags before God. Even our good things are selfishly motivated. And so before God, they're, they're just dirty rags because I do them all for myself. 
So why? I can't choose myself. If I had to pick a pickup game for eternal life, I'm not picking myself. I'm not putting myself on the team. So what do I need? I need a coach who's going to pick me. I need someone who's going to choose me, right? So this is the point of this doctrine, right, is, is when I understand what I deserve, this seems fair to me. When I don't understand what I deserve, this doctrine will seem unfair to you. God chose. By the way, it says it here, right? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Notice the direction of it. That we one day will be holy and blameless. And notice it says, in love. This is not a judgment of God choosing. This is a loving part of God's choosing. That he chooses us in him in love and then predestined us to adoption. This is what the picture is. Before the creation of the world, people were in the heart of God. Before even history was written, God's hand wasn't forced. He wasn't responding to a crisis. He wasn't ratifying a human choice. He was choosing on the basis of himself. He sovereignly chose out of who he is. That means he is the source and he is the reason. I love the way uh, Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, said, he said this. He said, I am so glad that God chose me before the foundation of the world because he never would have chose me after I was born. That's true. I'm so glad God chose me before the foundation. God knew what he was doing in our lives. God knew what he was doing in our lives. Now you might say, well, Dave, what about free will? Go, go down to verse 13 for a moment. Notice this. You find both. You find this this. These things are not contradictory, they're complementary. God chooses, but what happens? In response, because God chose and God takes his scales off, notice, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, what did you do? And believed in him. Notice, it makes it sound like we believe, right? Because we do believe. God initiates, we respond with belief. God initiates because we'll never choose ourselves, we'll never call ourselves, we'll never save ourselves, and God in faithfulness chooses us, and what happens? Now all of a sudden, the scales are off the eyes, and now my scales are off the heart, and I say, God, yes, God, I believe. God initiates, I respond. This is complimentary. In the scriptures, these things are not contradictory, they go together. The problem is, they're deep. They're deep. It's hard to understand the depth of God. But I want you to think about this for a moment. I think about my, my own my own children, when they were younger, I remember my youngest son, we bought this four-foot kind of pole that you, you know, blow up the top and then it fills up. And I remember he was pretty young, we had it in our backyard, and, uh, and he would get in there and he would hold onto the ladder for dear life. And the moment we would take him out and say, you can almost touch, like, come on out here, it would just be the water came right up to here. And so he would start to go out in the pool and he would say, it's too deep, he was too deep, and he'd start freaking out. What he didn't know was only four feet. It was only like literally inches from his toes. But in his mind, that could have been 20 foot deep, right? When we read something like this, it's the same way. We read it and we think, man, this is so deep. I've got to figure this out. I can't imagine. Like, how, what does this mean for my life? But what we're doing is we're treading water in water that, that we think is really deep, but it's really just, it's just 10 feet deep. It's just below the surface. It's, it's beyond our ability, but, but it's true. And, and it's calling us to say, I trust. The subject is God, right? So it's big, it's massive. And here's what I've learned in my life. Can I tell you this about this doctrine? Back when I was in seminary, I remember staying awake at night for hours trying to figure out what do I believe about this. I remember literally staring at the ceiling and saying, oh, is it this or is it that? 
God's choosing free will. You know what? The longer I've been a Christian, the more I'm like, God, I'm okay with the mystery. I am okay that this is beyond my ability. I am okay. And what I know is I could not save myself. I needed your salvation. I needed you to go to the cross. I needed you to rise again. I needed you to wake me up. I needed you to bring me to life. The longer I've been a Christian, the more I'm just like, I'm okay with the mystery. So can I tell you what I think about this passage? I believe the most essential thing we can do this morning is not just to read this to solve a mystery. I think the most essential thing we can do this morning is to read this and stand amazed at the mystery. There's a big difference, right? We read this and say, I want to solve the mystery. I believe we can read this and be amazed at the mystery. God, you chose me. God, you, you brought me life. God, you bring me salvation. God, you saved me. What an amazing thing. I don't think you have to choose camps. Choose Christ. That's the point. The whole point of this is look what God has done for us. By the way, he goes on. The Father chose us. It says, he predestined us for the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. He adopted us. Can I tell you, adoption is a powerful thing. In fact, adoption is even greater than salvation. Why? Because adoption means that there's a personal relationship. In our day, we adopt because we want to save children. In their day, they adopted to carry on a legacy. It wasn't about saving a child. It was about carrying on your own legacy. God adopted us. He brought us in. He rescued us and adopted us and gives us a legacy in himself. We are chosen by the Father. Secondly, we are redeemed by the Son. Notice what it says. We are redeemed by the Son. Verse 7, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. We have redemption. Now, redemption is, is a beautiful word. It's one of my favorite words, actually, in the Greek language because it literally it means to buy back. I was talking to a husband recently, and uh, he was telling me the story uh, that one day his wife went over here to uh, Veterans of America, uh, the thrift store right next to us here down, down the road, and uh, his wife brought back a couple shirts for him. And he opened the, this, this bag up that she had them in, and one of the shirts was a shirt that he had just given away to Veterans of America. And his wife said, I think this would look good on you. Well, yeah, because I used to wear it. And I thought, what a funny story. That's exactly the word. Redemption literally means to buy back. God bought us back. We were created in the image of God. We broke that image by our sin. And what happened? God bought us back. He redeemed us through, through what? Through the blood of Christ. And then he forgives our sins and then he rose again to say, yes, you can be bought back. I have paid the price. It is done. It's the word on the cross to telestai. The debt is paid. It is finished. You are redeemed. Thirdly, not only are we redeemed by the Son, we are secured by the Spirit. Take, take a look at what he says. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed, were sealed. We are secured by the Holy Spirit. He seals us. Literally, the word is like the word tattoo. It's the word branded. We are branded by the Spirit. We are identified by the Spirit. Uh, people look at us. We have been marked by the Spirit. That's the word there. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession? He is the down payment of our inheritance. You ever try to describe to the younger generation layaway? Remember layaway, you go to the store, you buy something, but then you pay a down payment for it, and you pay over the months, and then eventually you get the product. Now we have just credit cards to do all of that. You just buy it and have it now, and then pay for it later. 
but there used to be layaway. That's the point, is, is literally the Spirit is the guarantee. He is the down payment, the first payment of the promise that one day we'll take possession of glory. We'll be, take possession of this life in Christ. That one day our identity will never be confusing because we will truly be in Christ. Now I want you to follow this. Identity is received, not achieved. Chosen by the Father. Redeemed by the Son. Secured by the Spirit. This is us. This is you, believer. This is your identity. Chosen by the Father. Redeemed by the Son. Secured by the Spirit. All of this is done not by you, not by me. All of this is done by God. In fact, of the 40 pronouns in these verses, there are nearly 40 pronouns. 40 of them. 30 of them are God. Of the 24 verbs, there are 24 verbs or portions of action sequences. Of the 24 verbs, 20 of them are God doing it for us. So what is Paul saying? Paul is saying, listen, if you're looking for identity, if you're trying to gain identity or earn identity or succeed to get identity, guess what? You're not going to find it. Because identity is wrapped in what God has done for you. It is wrapped in the God of the universe who chose you, who redeemed you, who secures you. Christian, that's our identity. It doesn't have to be in our success. It doesn't have to be in that sport that wins or loses. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with striving to be great in work. Nothing wrong with having relationships. And nothing wrong with trying to gain money to give to the Lord and use for his glory. Nothing wrong with having a great house and cars. Nothing wrong with those things. Nothing wrong with rooting for the Ohio State Buckeyes. But when our identity becomes those things, we will lose every time. Why? Because we'll be like pinball, aimlessly going through life, trying to find the next thing and the next thing and the next victory and the next success and the next money. And Paul here writes and says, no, no, no. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavy places. Identity determines behavior. Paul here does not begin this letter with a checklist. He doesn't begin by saying, you gotta do this, you gotta do that. He begins by saying, here's who you are. So what, what should this conclude? Number three, and here's the, the conclusion. Identity is deeply connected to our worship. I, I want you to notice how this begins. Notice verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is it calling us to do right from the very beginning? It doesn't start with, you're blessed. It says, blessed be the God and Father. It's calling us to bless God, to praise God. The word here is the word eulogy. Give God praise. Notice verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace. The end of verse 6, he's talking about chosen by the Father. How does it end? To the praise of his glorious grace. Notice um, verse 12, talking about Christ the Son. Notice the end of that. So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Why are we redeemed by the Son? To the praise of his glory. We're chosen by the Father to the praise of his glory. Notice the end of verse 14. We, we have a guarantee of the inheritance in the Holy Spirit, secured by the Spirit. Notice it. To the praise of his glory. What is this, for, this, uh, this text calling us to? It's calling our identity to be deeply connected to our worship. Why? Because what we worship is what we as ascribe worth to, which is what worship means. And all of a sudden, our passion, 
Our devotion is turned to it. If your identity is wrapped in work, what's going to happen? You're going to worship it. If your identity is a relationship, you're going to worship finding that relationship. If your identity is in money, you're going to worship money. What happens? If your identity is set in Christ, the natural response is, wow. Wow, God. I mean, you chose me. You redeemed me. You secured me. This is who I am. Like, think about this. All of a sudden, aimlessness is crushed. All of a sudden, insecurity is gone. All of a sudden, I've got God. I'm good. I mean, God has given me all that I am, all that I need in life. I mean, yes, I may not always succeed and I still falter, but my identity is set. The plight of our generation, aimlessness, is overcome. If we embrace this, if we fully not only acknowledge this, but if we let this simmer into our souls, can I tell you, it will fill us with awe. And instead of insignificance, our insignificance is overcome by security. If you let this sink in, the moments you feel unworthy will be overcome with purpose. If you let this sink in, the moment you go through a trial, you're okay. Yet yeah, it hurts. Yet yeah, it's a struggle. But you're good because there's Christ. Right, all of a sudden, you go through periods where you fail. What happens? You get back up. There's strength after failure. There's assurance in struggles. There's hope in trials. There's confidence in mission. When we understand what God has given to us in our identity, we stand back and we say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who is blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I know who I am and therefore I can live my life freely. Let me ask you, who are you? Who are you? I'm going to ask us to bow together in prayer. If you would, just stand where you are across every campus. Just stand where you are. We're going to pray. and I'm going to ask you this as we bow. Who are you? Who are you? You want to know who you are? How, how do you respond in a trial? How do you respond after failure? How do you respond in situations unknown? How have you responded during the coronavirus? How, how do you respond in injustice? How do you respond? Like, right, our responses give us a picture of our identity. What are the things that you, you strive for? What are the things that you feel like if I just had it, my life would be better? What are the things you just wished for your life? They can define for you what it looks like and where your identity comes from. And maybe you're here this morning, maybe you're watching this morning, and your identity is not set in Christ. And you read this text and the Father chooses and the Son redeems and the Spirit secures and you're searching for identity. You're on this aimless plight. You're a pinball machine. You're a ball just going all over the place trying to find identity and it can only be found in Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that can satisfy. And today would be the day that you take that step of faith and say, God, scales are off and I believe in the word of truth. I believe in your death and resurrection. And I transfer my trust for myself to you and you alone. My identity is in you. If you're here and you know Christ, who are you? And how are you living out the answer to that question? If you're in Christ, man, there should be praise and celebration in the darkest night our heads can rise. Why? I, everything that matters in life is set 
I know who I am. This life might not come and, and, and do what I think it should do, but I know who I am in Christ. I am, I am chosen by the Father. I am redeemed by the Son. I'm secured by the Spirit. And nothing can change that. Nothing can change that. And our hearts can be settled. And then action flows. Who are you? God, I want to thank you for this reminder. Lord, I know in my own life I have I've sought and looked and wondered and wanted. And every time it leaves me empty and every time it never satisfies because you are the only one. You are the place to find identity. Lord, we run through this life and it's like grasping at the wind. It will never satisfy our longing for purpose and identity. But in you, Lord, we've been chosen. In you, we've been redeemed. In you, we've been secure. And so that now, God, confidence can rise. And Lord, our hearts can praise you. Our hearts can tremble before you. They can tremble. Why? Because your identity. Blessed be you, the God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the praise of your glorious grace, to the praise of you, God. And our identity can be, can be connected to our worship as we worship you. The one constant in our lives is in your name, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who died, our Redeemer who lives, our Forgiver who is coming again. It's in your name, Jesus. Amen.